0: welcome to the never-ending quest for clarity this is loving liberty with brian hyde well hello there and once again welcome to loving liberty with brian hyde hey i'm glad you could join me although i understand a lot of people have some free time on their hands now that they may not have had at this time last week wow wow where do we begin I I think I'm just going to go on the record and say, I think last week may well have been the most interesting week of my life so far. Now, I better knock on wood (laughs) before I go any further with that. It's, uh, man, I've just, I've never seen such a dramatic shift in the way that people think in such a short amount of time. Absolutely incredible. and, And I'm still not sure what to, what even to make of it. But uh, I want to share some things with you today that I hope will be um, not only empowering but also encouraging. I don't want to sit here and preach gloom and doom. Of, oh, we're all going to die, and there's a coronavirus you know, pandemic. Obviously, there's some big, some big concerns to health officials throughout the world, and uh, and one prediction that I heard too, this is from my friend Joe Carey, uh, is that uh, we really haven't seen widespread testing yet here in the U.S. So the possibility is that you're going to see the The number of cases go far, far higher once that testing is initiated, and I'm just going to urge you don't uh, don't flip out on us, man. Don't don't freak on me. It's uh, right now. It appears most people seem to get the the illness and get over it fairly quickly. The ones who are affected, obviously, um, it's a rough time for them. But um, brace yourself. There might still be some some pretty interesting stuff ahead of us. I mean, look at the markets today. And you'll see again the, the volatility is is there. There is full on panic at the Federal Reserve, to where they've lowered the interest rates to zero. They've dumped in seven hundred billion dollars worth of quantitative easing. Whew, the the economic repercussions actually uh, scare me a lot more than the prospect of you know choking to death, you know having trouble breathing because of this virus. So well, so much for starting on a really bright note. One thing that, uh, that I thought was interesting that uh, I, I don't know how many people are, are focused on this. I got an article from Jacob Hornberger. This came in my email and he didn't write this. He actually was sharing it. It's uh, from The Intercept. The headline says, amid coronavirus chaos, U.S. and Iran edge closer to war. Did that sound like something we ought to be keeping track of? Just Just curious. I think that uh, if, if this is from Murtaza Hussein, Hussein, who says, if you listened closely this week behind the terrifying clamor of COVID-19 sweeping across the planet, you might have heard the sound of war nearly breaking out again between the United States and Iran. On Wednesday, the birthday of assassinated Iranian General Qasem Soleimani, a barrage of rockets slammed into the Camp Taji Air base north of the Iraqi capital of Baghdad. That attack killed two Americans and a Briton. Wounding 14 others. Well, a day later, U.S. forces in Iraq hit back, carrying out airstrikes against Khatib Hezbollah, an Iranian backed Iraqi militia that it blamed for the attack. Now, it's a safe bet that the violence between the U.S. and Iran will not stop there. Already on Saturday morning, reports had emerged of another attack at the same base that wounded three more U.S. service members. Uh oh. Hmm. Well, despite a terrifying pandemic that's overwhelmed, overwhelmed entire cities in Iran and now looms over the United States. This article says the crisis between the two countries that began when the Trump administration exited the 2015 Iran nuclear deal shows no signs of abating. The possibility of war in the midst of a global public health crisis is, to put it mildly, outrageous. Iranians are believed to be among the most numerous victims of the covid-19 pandemic. Their government's decision to risk a conflict at this moment is both mystifying and galling. But Iran's determination to hit back against the United States, regardless of its people's suffering, does illustrate an important point. It puts paid to a major Trump administration justification for the controversial assassination of Soleimani back in January. And that was deterrence. Remember, that was what we were told. The entire strategy, according to Mike Pompeo... Secretary of State, was, that, uh, was one of deterrence, claiming the drone strike against the general sent a decisive message to the Iranian government that would force it to refrain from future acts of aggression. Nope. Instead, it looks like it uh, forced them into this uh, downward spiral of tit-for-tat that, uh, unfortunately, could get out of control. As the author from the article says, but if deterrence really was the strategy, this has been a resounding failure. Even before this week's deadly attacks, rockets have continued to periodically rain down on U.S. bases in Iraq, as well as the U.S. embassy in Baghdad. Iran has indicated in public statements that it plans to take what it views as full revenge for the killing of Quds Force Chief Soleimani at a time of its choosing. The deadly attack on Camp Taji suggests they're not bluffing. Now, there's also some historical context to consider as well. Since the 1979 revolution that brought the current government to power, Iran has shown that it's willing to endure a tremendous amount of punishment to achieve its strategic goals. During Iran's war with Iraq during the 1980s, then-Iranian Supreme Leader Ayatollah Ruloa Khomeini continued to battle Saddam Hussein long after his attempted invasion of Iran had been repelled. Hundreds of thousands on both sides were killed over years of grueling World War i style trench warfare, all in dogged pursuit of Khomeini's goal of forcing the Baathists from power and placing an Iran friendly government in Baghdad. By the way, the Iranians would have to wait until 2003 when the U.S. state, United States rather, uh, graciously accomplished this goal for them. Today, the article says, even amid a cataclysmic public health crisis that is said to have killed hundreds of Iranians, including several top political and military leaders, Iranians show no sign of relenting on what they view as their primary geopolitical interests. Their continued attacks on American targets in Iraq suggest they're pushing forward toward their main strategic goal, which is ejecting U.S. troops from Iraq. In an article about the recent violence... Afshan Ostovar, a professor at Naval Postgraduate School and author of Vanguard of the Imam, Religion, Politics, and Iran's Revolutionary Guards, wrote that Iranian-backed militia attack on, on Camp Taji and the U.S. military response fits right into the aims of Khatib Hezbollah and Iran. The attacks by U.S. aircraft help increase public anger in Iraq against... U.S. military activity there, it also laid the groundwork for a broader confrontation that might force the United States to leave for good. Now, the author says that Iran and its Iraqi allies have more Iraqi deaths and destruction to fuel their effort to expel U.S. forces from the country. And Ostevar wrote they also have to re- have cause to respond further if they wish in order to bait the U.S. into additional aggressive acts on Iraqi soil but doing so would compel the U.S. to respond in kind. The cycle of escalation would continue toward certain conflict. Now, interestingly enough, despite its overwhelming military advantages, that would be a conflict that the U.S. would actually be very poorly positioned to win. The U.S. public is exhausted and disillusioned with years of seemingly pointless fighting in the Middle East. Most Americans are also anxious over the impact of COVID-19 at home, and they're unlikely to be thrilled with the idea of diverting more resources to fighting another war with no clear end goals. So unlike Iran, where the government wields authoritarian and sometimes brutal power to quell public dissent, the U.S. is constrained in its capacity to ignore the wishes of its own people. That's why U.S. officials like Pompeo have insistently portrayed Suleimani's killing as a way of tamping down violence in Iraq rather than escalating it. It's a disingenuous claim that's getting harder to defend. Here the author says the proxy war between the U.S. and Iran looks certain to continue. It seems that not even a global health crisis can stop it. One thing is clear, however, ordinary Iranians, Iraqis and Americans can ill afford this violence right now. I agree completely. He says even before the devastation wrought by COVID-19, Iran was struggling to cope with the consequences of American sanctions. It is in even worse shape today. The United States under Donald Trump, meanwhile, seems ill-prepared for the social and economic upheaval that will accompany a major pandemic on U.S. soil. So it doesn't seem like much to ask that U.S. and Iranian leaders postpone their score settling until the pandemic threat that faces us all can be brought under control. But he says even that modest hope... May be out of reach. Again, this is from Murtaza Hussein from The Intercept. I'll have a link to his article. It's definitely worth reading. Now, I don't know. Maybe is is this the distraction people need to to get their minds off? You know, the the scary stuff that's going on here at home. I certainly hope not. You know, I I am one of those Americans who's very weary of uh, the the fighting that has been going on in the Middle East. And at the risk of not being patriotic, I just have to say it, it has nothing to do with protecting my freedom or your freedom. We are no freer because of all of these far flung conflicts, and especially those of the last 18, 19 years. If anything, we're less free. So what is the real objective and perhaps someone you know, with a greater degree of sophistry than I'm willing to embrace can explain why. No, no, it makes perfect sense. It's because you know we want to have our gas under you know this amount. I don't know. I just want government to do what it's supposed to do, and and stop all the uh, nation building and uh, imperial behavior. Is that too much to ask? This is loving liberty. Hey, once again, welcome back to Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. Glad you could join me today. Hold your calls, by the way, until the next hour. We will have a lot to talk about, and I will open up the phone lines in that hour. Uh, In the meantime, I discovered something over the weekend that, uh, well, okay, I I won't say I discovered it. I just kind of reinforced something that I've suspected for a long time, and that is the quickest way to become unpopular is to introduce a truth that people do not wish to acknowledge. In this case, I uh, had made a couple of comments to a, a story that was published about, you know, the Utah Attorney General is now, you know, vigorously pursuing cases where price gouging is taking place. And I saw a lot of people jumping on the bandwagon. Yeah, man, we ought to stop that price gouging. It's against law and we got to stop people. Now, look, I've seen the empty store shelves. I have seen the lack of basic commodities. And it's scary. There there are no two ways about it. It is really unnerving to see everything snapped up and realize, Ooh, I don't know when the next time is I'm going to be able to buy a gallon of milk. I don't know when I'm going to be able to find hand soap or, or toilet paper or you know any of these things. But it doesn't change the fact that price gouging laws, in other words, laws that prohibit people from raising prices, actually make the problem worse. And I had people, you know, some people accuse me of, well, you know, when you're rich, it's not a concern. So but not everybody can afford things like you can. And I was like, <laughs> well, you know, it's been a while since I've lit up a cigar with a hundred dollar bill. But um, no, it's, it's not a matter of, of I'm rich and therefore I can afford whatever I want. You know, the most simple explanation is just simply this. If, if you want those supplies to be available for those who truly need them then you have to be willing to allow those selling the supplies to raise the price as a signal of, of demand. That price signal is very important. And by raising that price, it puts it out of reach of people who would buy it you know, carelessly or, or just callously. I just you know, I want to have all the toilet paper and hoard it for myself. You know, when they're paying 50 bucks for a package of toilet paper, then they have to stop and think, do I really need this? and they'd leave it for someone who really needs it and will, will find a way to get it. I know it sounds counterintuitive, so I'm not going to ask you to take my word for it. Veronica DeRugge, writing for Creators.com, has a great article here on supply and demand, hoarding, price gouging, and the coronavirus. So please, consider what she has to say, and you know if, if you think I'm as full of it as a Christmas goose, that's okay, but hear her out. She says, as the saying goes... Nothing is certain but death and taxes, and she says, I would add, and anti-price gouging legislation in times of crisis. Yet price increases in the face of sudden shortages are an important impetus to restore supply and demand market conditions that are closer to normal. Now, she says, as many of us have experienced in the past few weeks, buying toilet paper, hand sanitizer and face masks has become more difficult and more expensive. The reason, of course, is that unusually large numbers of people are rushing to buy these and other products that might prevent the spread of the coronavirus. It's normal for people to stock up on supplies during crises. The immediate results are empty store shelves, soon followed by higher prices. So when this happens, politicians around the globe demand an end to the price hikes. The goal is to improve consumer access on the, to the products now in higher demand. She says in New Jersey, for instance... At least 10 retailers have received warnings from the government to stop their so-called price gouging. Similarly, the French government announced that it won't tolerate such price increases and will soon decree a price ceiling on face masks and hand sanitizers. Hand sanitizers rather, In a move guaranteed to worsen and lengthen the shortages, French officials are even going so far as to appropriate stocks of masks. Just this week, the Department of Justice threatened to act against bad actors who raise prices during this time of panic, and the list goes on and on. While well-intentioned, she says such heavy-handed intervention is a mistake on many levels. Now listen to her reasoning. First, the rise in prices conveys nothing more than the unusually intense surge in demand for these products. Consumers value these products more now than they did just a few weeks ago which is reflected by the higher prices. But here's another reality. If prices are kept artificially low, there's little incentive for shoppers not to buy as much as they can. Of course, only those shoppers lucky enough to get to the stores first can do so. Their hoarding then leaves nothing for shoppers in line behind them. The fact is there's no better means of slowing the rising demand and especially reducing excessive hoarding than allowing the very price hikes that governments are trying to control. But price hikes have another important advantage. They create the necessary incentives for entrepreneurs to shift resources toward activities that increase the supply of these goods. The higher prices encourage higher levels of production for goods like masks or hand sanitizers, which then increases supply. Even companies that couldn't afford to produce these goods in the past will be prompted by high prices to now do so. The Japanese electronic giant Sharp started to use its tv factories to make surgical masks when the domestic supply went dry manufacturer foxconn did the same in china to protect its employees who assemble iphones government officials and pundits never seem to learn or remember that in times of crisis naturally rising prices are necessary to guarantee that goods services and inputs are used to to uh, maximum social advantage so when governments create price hikes or prevent price hikes, price hikes, rather. They unwillingly create shortages of vital supplies. Unfortunately, such government intervention makes it harder for people to recover from disasters or, today, to protect themselves from the coronavirus. Think about it. Without price fluctuations to provide a signal to manufacturers, how will they know by how much or how quickly they need to increase production? If prices are kept artificially low, factory owners have no way to know for sure that actual demand, not just hoarding, has risen enough to justify a change in their production schedules. Second, if governments keep prices from adjusting upward, the additional demand for masks might not result in enough revenue to cover the extra costs of producing and shipping more masks. The bottom line is that by keeping prices artificially low, governments around the world encourage artificially high demand from hoarders, for example. Necessary increases to the supply chain will also be discouraged, which results in unnecessary shortages, long lines of desperate customers, empty shelves and black markets in dark alleys. And so Veronica Derugy asks, aren't we better off when products are actually on the shelves and available available for purchase, even if only at higher prices, when no such products are to be found except by the politically and socially connected ordinary citizens lose out. Beautifully stated. That's something that uh, you should share, and I'll have a link for this in the show notes. Share this with your friends. Look, it troubles me too. You know, it, it troubles me to see the the empty shelves. It troubles me to see, you know, the the higher prices in relation to things that we we took for granted. We're always going to be available. We're always going to be right there for our taking. But you can't overlook her point here about it's better to have those commodities available, even if it's at outrageous prices, than to have them all gone because the price was kept artificially low by these anti-gouging laws and someone came in and snapped them up. Yeah, some of the people who snapped them up, sure, they're going to go sell them on the black market or whatever. That's, That's fine, if you know where to find it, if you run in those circles. If not... Well, it just it, it exacerbates the problem. It's funny, too. One, one woman pointed out to me on Twitter when I said, you know, this is this is simple economics. You know, when something's in very high demand, the price shows that high demand that, that, that people value it more. And she says, well, it's still illegal in a time of national emergency. And I'm like, yeah, economics cares a great deal about words on paper. Come on, you're dealing with human nature here. Those higher prices would encourage people, you know, like in in times of hurricanes, the guy who's willing to, to truck, you know, thousands of pounds of bagged ice to a disaster area. He does so because he knows he can turn a profit on it. He's helping people. Yes, he's benefiting from it. Don't buy into the price gouging, you know, we've got to do something about this and government has to stop it. Keep government out of the way and watch how we solve our own problems. This is Loving Liberty. We'll be back right after these messages. All right, we are back. This is Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. Again, I'm going to ask you please hold your calls till the next hour, and uh, we will uh, jump on it uh, coming up in the next hour. I know we have a lot to talk about. If nothing else, if you just want to vent, this will be a great opportunity. So, one of the things that I have noticed is uh, a lot of uh, a lot of my neighbors. I'm getting to know them. It's this, this to me is the bright side. This has actually been the upside of, of uh, the whole coronavirus chaos that's been erupting around us. Is uh, I have seen my neighbors reach out. I have reached out to them. And there is a, there's a very neat spirit of cooperation that's going on here. Checking to see, is there something you need? Is there some way we can help you? And one of the things that uh, my sons and I were asked to do is help a neighbor carry a desk upstairs because his work has now asked him to work remotely. A lot of businesses, you know, are, are wherever possible, telling their employees to work from home if you can. So he just got to set up an office in his home. And, and frankly, I, I think that is actually becoming the norm among a lot of folks. Now, I don't want to brag. I've been doing this for uh, for a while now, for for over a year and I, while I sometimes miss my drive into Salt Lake City to visit with my friends at uh, the K Talk, I don't miss the traffic, and I certainly don't miss the hassle and the the wear and tear on the car. And and, and right now, I don't miss uh, I don't miss the idea that uh, I'm being around people who may have unknowingly come in contact with someone who's carrying coronavirus. So it it works out in many ways. John Miltimore, writing for intellectualtakeout.org, dot org has a terrific article about, yeah, the coronavirus is scary, but remote work shouldn't scare you. He says, it's always fun to observe people's reactions when I tell them, I work from home. Pity is not uncommon. Oh, how lonely. Occasionally it's jealousy. Man, that would be nice. Often it's bewilderment. How did you pull that off? But he says the most common reactions, though, are avowals from people who say in various ways they couldn't possibly work from home in a million years. Could never do it. I need people. Too many distractions. I just, uh, no, I just couldn't do it. How do you get anything done? And he says, though entertaining, these responses are a bit strange because remote work is so common today. At least according to a recent flex job analysis, remote work has grown by 91% over the last decade. A 2016 Gallup survey found that nearly one third of U.S. employees worked remotely at least 80% of the time. Government statistics put the full time figure a little bit lower, 29%. The conversation is relevant, he says, as the U.S. braces for what could potentially be the worst pandemic in a century that has led public health experts to prod companies to encourage workers to (gasps) work from home. So here are some of the pros and cons of working remotely. John Miltimore says for some people, particularly introverts and germaphobes, the best part of working from home has to be the absence of other people. He says, I'd never thought of this until recently, perhaps because I'm only mildly introverted, according to the Myers-Briggs test, and not a germaphobe. But he says, this week, however, as I was getting ready for work, he says, my wife casually mentioned that the first coronavirus case had been confirmed in our county. As the barrage of emails from schools and local governments poured in, followed by school shutdowns, a presidential announcement, and a temporary travel ban from Europe... Suspension of the NBA season and news that March Madness wouldn't have spectators. It occurred to me what remote work offers. No handshaking, no communal bathrooms, which means never having to sit on a warm toilet seat. No chatty colleague who parks himself in your office to complain about his ex-wife while coughing and then scooping a handful of M&Ms from the dish on your desk. One need not be a germaphobe to see the benefits. Pandemics aside, every year, 12,000 to 61,000 Americans die from the flu. That's according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. In fact, some 18,000 have died from, this, uh, from the flu this season already. So he asks, am I worried about dying from COVID-19? No, he says, I'm 40 years old, hale and hearty, but no flu is exactly a picnic, even if it doesn't kill you. So he says, this got me thinking about other benefits of working from home no commute is a blessing to which i would add amen bro not having to pay for before school or after school care for our kids is great we save a bundle and he says i don't have to pack a lunch i can work out whenever i feel like it theoretically (laughs) are there downsides to remote work yeah absolutely it can get lonely though this is much less of a problem today with apps like slack and monday.com that keep you in close touch with co-workers Distractions can be an issue, too, especially if you're not disciplined or don't have production-based goals to meet. Leaving the TV off is a good policy, he says. And he says, because I'm aware of potential distractions, I generally don't even like to leave my office. I get sucked up in housework or something. Now, he says, my wife is laughing at this line, but it's true. Still, sitting for hours on end at the computer isn't really good either. Communication can also be tricky. Some things are just easier to talk about in person and can't be communicated as effectively via email or instant message. He says the biggest challenge to remote work for him is overcoming a feeling that every message I receive needs to be answered right now so people don't think I'm watching The Witcher or taking a nap. So what's more productive? He says, I get more done. That's how I respond to people who ask me what it's like working from home. People don't seem to believe me, but he says it's true. It's not hard to see why when you think about it. I don't have to worry about people stopping by to chat and interrupt my work. There are no long lunches with colleagues. No commute is probably the biggest factor. He says, in previous jobs, I'd spend 90 minutes to two hours every day getting from my driveway to my office. Now that time is spent working. Now, this is anecdotal, of course, but he says a lot of research on the subject backs up my experience. A well-cited two-year Stanford University study conducted with the Chinese travel website Ctrip found a remarkable surge in worker productivity, the equivalent to nearly a day's work each week among employees who worked from home. We found massive, massive improvement in performance, a 13% improvement in performance from people working at home. That's Stanford professor Nicholas Bloom, who discussed the topic in a 2017 TED Talk. Remote employees also tend to have lower attrition rates and are more likely to work a full day, according to Bloom. It turns out offices tend to have a lot of distractions. NCAA pools, water cooler talk, parties, Jim's retiring, there's cake in the break room, come join. You get the drift. Other studies and surveys show similar results. John Milchmore says a 2019 Airtasker survey of 1,004 full-time U.S. employees, for example, found that remote employees worked 1.4 days more per month, 16.8 more days per year, than their office counterparts. Perhaps the best evidence comes from remote workers themselves. More than 9 in 10 say that they are more productive at home than in the office. That's according to a Tiny Pulse survey. So does working from home always make workers more productive? The answer is, of course not. As The Atlantic pointed out in 2017, after IBM ended its long-standing work-from-home policy, ironic, since IBM pioneered telecommuting in the early 1980s, sometimes working from home doesn't improve productivity. Some jobs are more conducive to remote work than others, and some characteristics of jobs are also more conducive. If the work produces easily measurable metrics of personal productivity, for example, chances are working from home will increase productivity. If the position requires a lot of work with clients and modest or low communication with co-workers, same deal. Work dependent on collaborative efficiency, on the other hand, is likelier to result in a productivity drag if employees regularly work remotely. Why? Well, the answer seems to lie in what he wrote about communication. Communication can be tricky for remote workers. Work that requires a great deal of collaboration on complex systems could see productivity suffer, especially if team members aren't strong communicators. Now, the coronavirus lesson of remote work is what he tackles next. And John Miltimore says nobody knows how widespread or how deadly the coronavirus may be. What we do know is that the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC, says the virus is spreading and that Americans should be prepared for, quote, significant disruption, which has finally arrived. No one is yet saying COVID-19 is the Spanish flu, a virus that broke out in January 1918 and killed an estimated 50 million people worldwide over three years. But there's reason to believe it could be deadlier than its cousin, the 2009 swine flu, which caused hundreds of thousands of deaths worldwide, including some 12,500 fatalities in the U.S. His point is we simply don't know. But companies should explore reasonable precautions to protect workers from acquiring or transmitting COVID-19 and encouraging employees to work remotely when feasible is prudent. It's not panicking. Now, not everyone can work from home, of course. If you're a school teacher, waiter, construction worker or one of a thousand other jobs, you're more than likely going to have to go to work, at least for now. But working from home is likely a viable option for millions of working Americans who are currently not taking advantage of the opportunity. One of the beauties of a capitalist system is that most private companies are results-driven enterprises. That means if workers aren't getting their jobs done, supervisors likely are going to know about it pretty quickly. And John Miltimore says, I suspect companies will find that most workers will stay productive without being watched. And Who knows? Maybe they'll even increase their bottom lines. Hear, hear. That's John Miltmore, originally published on Fee. I will have a link to this this story on the show notes, which we'll post up here shortly after we uh, put this up for podcast. This is Loving Liberty. We'll be back after these messages. All right, once again, we are back. This is Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde, and I'm so glad that you're part of my audience. And if you're finding something of value in my broadcast or podcast, please feel free to share this with your friends. It's a free app, Loving Liberty. You can find it for Android as well as for iPhone. And, of course, you can always listen to our live stream at LovingLiberty.net. You'll also find on the Loving Liberty app as well as at LovingLiberty.net complete podcast archives for every program that we carry 24-7, twenty four seven around the clock we've got some great shows that are bringing much needed information and encouragement to you and again if if you find it useful, please feel free to share it So one of the biggest concerns that uh, that I had waking up this morning, even though I am not an economic player i'm not I'm not somebody who plays the markets, but um, I have friends who are very closely tied to the markets. Uh, one friend was uh, telling me last week about uh, how difficult it is watching you know ten to fifteen thousand dollars a day vanish from his 401k. That's got to hurt. And the turmoil caused by or brought about in relation to the uh, um, the the economic fallout in relation to the coronavirus and the response is is going to be pretty big. In fact, uh, I saw an article over the weekend. I I don't uh, I I can't find it at the moment, but if I can find it, I'll post a link to it that says, you know, the, the biggest danger that we're facing right now is not, you know, thousands of people or millions of people dropping dead from coronavirus. The biggest danger is hundreds of thousands, possibly millions of people are going to be bankrupted. Why? Because they can't work. Because whatever their work is, is being shut down or scaled back or otherwise restricted. I mean, just within uh, just overnight, the recommendation has gone from uh, let's avoid gatherings of 100 people or more to gatherings of 50 people or more. When you see stuff like that going on, you know there is an economic price that's going to be paid. And and the crazy thing about it is, you know what the the, the standard response for people who believe in the power of government, ones who really truly believe, well, we've got to come up with a stimulus package. I'm going to refer to uh, again Veronica derugi rather. She is getting uh, she's getting some great airtime today, but she has some remarkable things to say. This is an article from the American Institute for Economic Research. Sorry. But stimulus policies will not work. And listen to her reasoning here. I think she's got this down. She says, thanks to the coronavirus crisis, stimulus talks are all the rage these days. The steep decline in the stock market and the numerous predictions of serious economic slowdown are enough to trigger all those who still suffer PTSD as a result of the Great Recession. The Twitter sphere, blogosphere, and opinion pages boom with a high volume of recommendations about what the government should and should not do To boost the economy. But she says the question I'm left pondering, however, is this one. What can Uncle Sam really do when the main reason people are reducing their purchasing power is not a lack of income. Unemployment remains very low. But rather that they wish to avoid physical contact with others. Who might have or might get the virus. Now she says, like others, I have no clue what the trajectory of this epidemic will be. She says, I'm not a doctor, at least not the kind of doctor who's useful during a public health crisis. But she says, I can tell you what I know about some of today's most popular options to stimulate the economy. And for the most part, they won't work. So take, for instance, a payroll tax holiday. In his March 11th televised address to the nation, President Trump encouraged Congress to consider supporting the economy with payroll tax relief. Now, this idea has many supporters. However, there are serious reasons to be very skeptical of a payroll tax holiday as a useful fiscal stimulus. Such, such skepticism, she says, is always appropriate, but it is especially appropriate right now. For one thing, as Milton Friedman made clear, we should never expect much of any temporary tax measures. The Tax Foundation just put out a paper that looks at previous temporary reductions in the payroll tax, and it credits against payroll tax liability such as the ones tried in 2011 and 2012 and finds that these fiscal manipulations had very mixed results. There are additional reasons to be skeptical this time around. She says an employee payroll tax cut might put more money into workers' pockets, but it's unlikely to stimulate aggregate demand significantly. The reason is that this additional cash won't do much to convince consumers to go to the likes of restaurants, supermarkets, airports, or automobile dealerships, As long as the epidemic is raging, equally pointless would be tax relief or subsidized loans to employers. Yes, during the crisis, many fundamentally healthy firms might encounter liquidity challenges. Such firms, however, would have no trouble borrowing the necessary liquidity from banks and other capital market sources. Supplying such liquidity is among the core functions of capital markets. Nothing about the coronavirus crisis renders capital markets unable to perform this worthwhile function. Next, she addresses stimulus by government spending. Last week, the administration approved a roughly $8 billion emergency spending to develop medical treatments and to prevent new infections. Now, the Trump administration has so far stayed away from proposing any additional government support as a way to support the economy, and that's a good thing. According to the economics literature, even if one grants the government spending that government spending rather can trigger sustainable economic growth in times of crisis, the way the money is spent is key for government spending to boost the economy. The spending should be timely, well targeted and temporary. But unfortunately, in real life, this does not happen. Take the 2009 American Recovery and Reinvestment Act. That stimulus bill directed $831 billion in spending toward, among other purposes, to create jobs through infrastructure construction projects. Now, according to Keynesian theory, for the spending to be targeted, the money should be injected into the economy so that companies that receive the funds will hire workers who don't have jobs in order to not only put them back to work, but to give them incomes to spend. But that's not what happened in 2009. The data also show that stimulus money wasn't targeted to those areas with the highest rates of unemployment. In fact, a majority of the spending was used to poach workers from existing jobs in firms where they might not be replaced. Whoops. Economists also found that instead of using the money to increase government purchases and to fund shovel-ready projects that would put people back to work, many states chose to use the money to close their budget gaps. This choice meant that the money went to keeping school teachers in their jobs and paying public sector workers rather than creating additional jobs in the private sector. Such spending is also rarely temporary. Part of the reason is that politicians use crises to push spending all that they wanted all along. And another reason is that once the spending starts flowing, it gives rise to special interests to do everything they can to ensure the spending doesn't stop. For all these reasons and a few others, A review of historical stimulus efforts shows that temporary stimulus spending tends to linger. Two years after the initial stimulus, 95% of the new spending becomes permanent. Oh, and forget about timely. She says the last time around, it took months and months to send the money out for spending on allegedly shovel-ready projects. And there are many reasons for such delays. One factor was documented recently by Eli Dorado in a must-read piece called Why Are We So Slow Today? He writes, part of the answer is environmental review. In the United States, a statute called the National Environmental Policy Act, or NEPA, requires review of major federal actions significantly affecting the quality of the human environment. Federal actions include issuing federal permits or approvals to private projects, and therefore NEPA effectively applies to these private projects as well. In addition to the federal NEPA, at least 20 states and localities have statutes known as little NEPAs that require similar review, end quote. So Dorado looks at how the burdensome review process affects the timing of stimulus in 2009 and finds, quote, the stimulus in ARRA is ended up being subject to around 193,000 NEPA reviews, including over 7,200 environmental assessments and 850 EISs, environmental impact statements. Now, during the time the reviews were being performed, no funds for the project could be dispersed and no work could begin. The entire purpose of fiscal stimulus is to rapidly inject funds into an economy that needs it to keep levels of spending stable. Because large portions of the stimulus couldn't happen in a timely manner, it was rendered less effective, leading to a long and painful recovery. Environmental review, therefore, was partially responsible for the severity of the recession. The bottom line is, if you believe, even if you believe that spending can stimulate the economy in theory, you should be skeptical of it in, in practice. So what's left? Well, Veronica DeRugge says, first, we should give up the fantasy that government can stimulate the economy out of this particular crisis. Second, Congress, the administration, their advisors, pundits, journalists should not explore this crisis or exploit this crisis, rather, to subsidize special interests or hand out favors to those seeking to achieve policy aims unrelated to the outbreak. No one should try to get their pet policy preferences implemented either. I'm thinking of you. Medicare for All, a hike to the Medicaid matching rate, and pass a permanent and universal government-funded paid leave program. She says the best bet the government can do right now, if it wishes to not act pointlessly or destructively, is to help most vulnerable Americans by tweaking some existing spending programs. It can, for example, help low-income workers with temporary and targeted funding, such as to pay for sick leave for relatively few workers that don't have access to this fringe benefit. But most of all, she says, unleashing human creativity guided by prices and profits in competitive markets is our best hope for not only bringing this crisis to an end as soon as possible, but also for building safeguards that will help us avoid or deal expeditiously with any such future crisis.